Well, thanks, Jana, for reading that. And let me add my welcome to Mark's. It's great to see you here. My name's Pete. I'm one of the ministers here. And we're picking up where we were two weeks ago as we started our sermon series in Mark's Gospel that we've been calling Good News. And uh, we're continuing today um, in this second bit of chapter one. Now, one of the things when Jesus comes on the scene that he announces is there in Mark chapter one, verse 15. Just look down. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When Jesus talks of a kingdom, he's talking about a new sphere of authority, not a ceremonial monarchy, as we're used to here in the UK, but an actual kingdom, a new transforming power and influence in the world, God's power, the kingdom of God, God himself working in space-time and history through the person of Jesus Christ and now continuing by his spirit. But as we see this talk of a kingdom or authority, then we need to set it in the context of our society today where as a lot of social commentators talk about, we are in a crisis of authority. We're not a society in the West where we love the idea of authority. Only 16% of voters in the UK, when interviewed, said that they currently trust their politicians to tell the truth. That is an all-time low. If you track voting patterns over the last 50 years, notwithstanding the so-called debate about the youthquake um, in the last general election, generally speaking, 18 to 24-year-olds, the younger generation, have declined in their voting patterns. Fewer and fewer voting year on year in significant elections and general elections. And the number one reason cited amongst that generation for why they don't vote is that they don't trust politicians. And of course, it's easy to swing the bat of politicians, but it's not just them. There has been a decline in the trust of all traditional sources of authority, often shown in the decline of memberships of traditional institutions, whether it's politicians or priests and the church, uh, whether it's uh, clubs or community hubs. And one of the things that's behind this is not just that there's a decline in a trust of authority, but there's a, a shift in the place we locate authority, from it being located in traditional institutions that were supposedly trustworthy and professions that were supposedly trustworthy, to now trusting in ourselves as individuals. There's been a shift from one to the other. As a poem that was scrawled on the wall of a university in graffiti in 1990s put it, we used to trust the politicians, but Watergate changed all that. We used to trust the generals, but Vietnam changed all that. We used to trust the scientists, but Three Mile Island and Chernobyl have changed all that. Now we have no one to trust. And look, we could fill in more contemporary examples to Watergate and Vietnam, couldn't we? Whether it's cash for peerages, or whether it's the Iraq war and weapons of mass destruction and the lies about that. We feel there is no one to trust. And so when you see this claim of Jesus, that the kingdom of God has come near, well, he says it's good news, but we're more inclined to think, I'm not sure that's good news. Because if it's a new sphere of authority, do I want that in my life? And yet, even as you read that, my hunch is that if you read Mark's gospel, you find something attractive and beckoning about Jesus. Because here seems to be a person whose authority is different. He doesn't seem to use it to domineer and push his own agenda. He seems to use it to serve and to welcome other people and seek their good. Well, let's look at Mark's gospel and let's try and work out why this new authority that Jesus announces is good news. As we look first of all at what this authority is like, then where it comes from, and then lastly, what Jesus wants to do with it. So let's look in the first point. What is this authority like? And I want us to see it's an amazing authority. One of the common reactions to Jesus in Mark's gospel is that people are amazed or surprised by him. 
Now, if you are someone who's been reading the Bible for a bit, or if you're someone who's never read it before, please just notice that. Because for Christians who've read the Bible for a while, they tend to think, yeah, I understand Jesus. He doesn't surprise me anymore. And normally when I speak to people who haven't engaged with Jesus on the pages of Scripture before, they normally say, yeah, you know, Jesus, I think he's a good guy telling people to be good. Let's be frank, there's nothing surprising about that at all, is there? And yet that is not the reaction people have to him. They're constantly surprised. Look down at verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching. It must have been something surprising. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And look down at verse 27, just at the bottom of the page. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. People are amazed at Jesus. He's surprising. He's wonderful. Why? Both because of the extent of his authority, just how powerful and authoritative he is, and the nature of his authority, what he comes to do with that. Let's look at some of the ways we see that. Look down with me at verses 16 to 20. We see here Jesus' authority over people. He can draw people to himself. He can command people. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Do you notice the immediacy of Jesus' authority? There's no delay there's no procrastination, there's no debate, not like when I try to ask my two-and-a-half-year-old son to do something and there's delay and there's negotiation, because I don't have that level of authority as much as I would like it sometimes. But when Jesus calls grown people, immediately, immediately they follow him. Do you see the immediacy of it? At once, verse 18, without delay, verse 20. And do you see the totality of his authority? Verse 18, they leave their nets, a symbol of their property, their career, their livelihood. They leave that which is precious to follow Jesus. Verse 20, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, before you mishear or misunderstand these verses, Jesus is not calling us to neglect our careers or neglect our possessions or our family if he calls us. But he is calling us to a radical reorientation of the priorities in our lives. He is so bold as to say that because I am the God who has made you and who's given you every good gift, then I need to be number one in your life. You will either have me as your all, or you do not have me at all. And so our careers, our possessions, our relationships, even our precious families must come under him. And there's a sense in which we never really will enjoy those things properly until we let Jesus be first in our lives. He has the priority of place, and he puts everything else in the right place and in the right perspective. Amazing authority over people. But it's not just people. Follow with me. Do you see his authoritative teaching? Verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. What does it mean to teach as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Well, you know the way it is. If you're writing an essay or if you're referring an academic article, you have to refer to other people. You have to say, as such and such book says. Why? Because if you just write, as I say, then your supervisor will think, well, who are you? But when Jesus taught, he didn't need to refer to anybody else. 
He was the source of authority. He was the standard of truth. He didn't refer to anyone else. He said, this is what I'm saying, and this is true. And it was so self-evidently so that people were amazed. They'd never seen such authoritative teaching. He confounded his critics. He wowed the crowds. This is teaching of the authority of the Son of God. And not only authoritative teaching and authority over people, but now look down at verse 23. We see here that Jesus has authority even over the spiritual realm. Verse 23, just then a man in their synagogues who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. He has authority over the spiritual realm. Let us be clear, this is not duality. It's not that there's a cosmic battle between good and evil and we don't know which, know which way it's going to fall. Jesus is the Lord of all. Do you see the way the spirits refer to him? They beg him because they know that he has total authority over him. He's in control of the spiritual realm. And not just the spiritual realm, but he has control over the physical realm as, as well. Look at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up, the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Strength restored straight away. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. When Jesus was in town, the hospitals emptied. He had total authority over the physical realm as well. I mean, do you see this? Do you see the extent of his authority? He commands people and they obey. He commands evil spirits and they obey. He commands physical infirmities and they obey. He has total control of all aspects of human and global existence, spiritual or physical, personal and otherwise. Jesus is in control of it all. And as you look at that, I wonder, do you think, well, that's a very great power and I find that a little bit concerning? Because if someone that powerful comes into my orbit, what could they do with me? What could he call me to? But don't only see the extent of his authority, see the nature of his authority. This is a loving authority. Do you see, he uses it to heal, not to harm. He dismisses evil. He doesn't do evil. He comes to serve and to restore and to redeem, rather than to come to be served and to domineer and to push his own agenda on your life. Jesus has a loving authority. I remember a few years ago when I was playing rugby, I played in a match where before the game, as we saw the team training and warming up, we saw one of their players who was kind of one of those guys who was as wide as he was tall. He was a Samoan and he had, you know, kind of forearms and arms the size of all of our players' thighs. And we were kind of looking at this thinking he's going to be a handful. And sure enough, for 80 minutes, he was a proper handful. Their star player, everything we could do to try to shackle him and stop him dominating us. And then I remember at the end of the game, after he'd run riot for the whole game, this little child, about two years old, ran onto the pitch and ran up to him and said, Daddy, and this huge giant of a man with all of that power picked up the child in his arms. And I remember thinking at that moment, there is not a safer child in all the world. <laughs> all of that great power, 
but gentled for the child's good. My friends, that is the picture we have of Jesus. He has unlimited authority, amazing authority, but it's gentled. It's for our good, not for our harm. It's to protect us and serve us, not to do harm and evil to us. Isn't that attractive? Wouldn't it be something if every source of authority in the world was so gentled like that? So it is with Jesus. Amazing authority. Let's look next in the uh, second lot of verses, verses 35 to 37, where this authority comes from, the source of Jesus' amazing authority. I have to say, I've preached these verses before. I've done Bible studies on these verses. I've always struggled with verses 35 to 37. It's always been a head-scratcher for me. What are these verses doing here? If you've read Mark before, you'll know that he's a gospel writer in a hurry. His favorite word is immediately as he takes us on a breakneck speed through the early chapters. And yet here he slows everything down. Do you notice the way the narrative slows down? Very early in the morning, verse 35, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Why does Mark tell us this? What does it add to these early chapters? Sure, it has applications for the fact that we should be taking daily devotional times, but is that the main point? Well, I wonder if what this is doing here is to show us the source of Jesus' authority, because here's something remarkable. Jesus is fully God, second person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as fully God, he has all of the power of the universe at his fingertips. But he does his um, ministry and his mission, not in his own power and in his own strength, but because he is also fully human, he does it in the power of the Father and the Spirit. And that is why we have these verses, because they're showing us where Jesus gets his authority from. And just to help you understand that as well, that's why we have the baptism earlier on in chapter 1. We are shown that Jesus is baptized in the Spirit because we're intended to see that's where his power comes from. The Father gives the Son the Spirit, and the Son does his ministry in the power of the Spirit, not relying on his own strength, but relying on the Father's strength. And that's why you see Jesus pray at key moments. Now, why is this so important? Well, because Jesus comes on the scene and says, Mark 1.15, repent. That means turn away and believe, trust the good news. Well, what is he telling us to turn away from? Self-reliance. That's right. The great virtue of our age is the great vice in the Bible, that we seek to do things in our own strength without reference to God. Jesus says, turn away from that. And he is the new Adam, the new humanity, who shows us how we're supposed to live. As it says in John chapter 8, verse 28, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. We like to think that rather than it being, as the prayer says, thine be the kingdom, the power, and the glory, in our culture it's mine be the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And Jesus says no. And here's the point. If he is the Son of God, if he is the wisest, most intellectually able, most powerful, most authoritative person who ever walked God's good earth, and he relies totally on the Father and not on his own strength, well, don't you think that we should say, where do we get off trying to do things in our own strength? The world says, you're enough. You can be enough. You can be sufficient. You can do enough. And you feel the weight of it. Some of you, it's crushing you. It's driving you to distraction. In the nicest possible way, in and of yourself, you are not enough. You will never be enough. But here's the wonderful thing. God is enough. Cast yourself on him as Jesus does, and you will find him to be all-sufficient and very gracious. 
Jesus' authority comes from the Father, and he says to you, my friend, seek the Father's authority in your life. That's the only thing that can sustain you as well. Lastly then, what does Jesus want to do with this remarkable, this amazing authority? Let's look at the focus of Jesus' amazing authority in verses 38 and 39. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. I wonder if you had this incredible, this amazing authority that Jesus did, what would you do with it? I wonder if you were to tell Jesus what he should do with it, what would be your agenda for his life? Hollywood has made rich pickings out of the scenario, the sci-fi scenario of someone gets given kind of divine authority or three wishes and what they're going to do with it. You remember that brilliant film that the critics appraised and gave all the Oscars to, Bruce Almighty? What does he do with all this authority? He just serves himself with it, and he makes a complete mess until in the film, to give the punchline away, God turns up and sorts it all out for himself. Well, here, what would Jesus do with his authority? What does he do? Isn't it surprising? Does he come to alleviate world poverty? Does he come to deal with primarily people's physical ailments? No, he comes. He says, let us go to preach. That's his primary aim. This in Mark's gospel is one of two places where we get Jesus' mission clearly stated here and in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And here he says, let us go to the nearby towns and preach, for that is why I have come. And I wonder, what do you make of that? Well, can I point out that it reveals two things? It reveals our greatest problem and it reveals God's solution. And we're going to see more on this next week because these verses are connected to it. It reveals our greatest problem. That is, our greatest problem is not primarily physical or relational or emotional or monetary. Our greatest problem is spiritual. Doctors in an emergency situation are trained to look beyond all of the outward signs and the symptoms, if I can be so bold, even the blood and the guts and the gore and the screaming for help and the person saying, my arm, my arm, it's my arm that hurts, and to diagnose what is the primary ailment. A good doctor will look beyond that and say, you know, the thing that's not hurting you, the fluid that's flooding into your chest cavity, you don't feel that. You want me to fix your arm, but that's the thing I've got to deal with because that's what's going to kill you. As we'll see next week, Jesus is the great physician. And he looks at you and you might be saying, Jesus, my arm. You know, in the metaphor, you might be saying, Jesus, I, I'm struggling financially. I've got debt issues. Help me with that. Or Jesus, I, my job is difficult at the moment. Help me with that. Or Jesus, I, I long for a relationship. Or my relationship is the problem. Help me with that. And Jesus says, my friend, those are all good things. But the primary issue I've got to deal with is something you might not be feeling right now. It's your sin. And because your sin is the primary issue, I've got to deal with that. And that's why I've come. I've come to preach good news, good news of forgiveness. Because it shows the problem, but also shows the solution that what Jesus achieves for us through his life, death, and resurrection is what he proclaims to us, a message of good news of forgiveness. And he says, that is what you need. That's your primary need. That is why I have come. That is what I do with all my authority. And here in these verses, there is a, a powerful hint about that, because this is one of two times in Mark's gospel where Jesus notably withdraws, goes on his own, withdraws even from his closest friends, the disciples here, and then later on when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. There, the night before he goes to the cross, he withdraws, he prays, and Jesus, who seems never 
overwhelmed by any circumstances. How could he? Because he's got such authority. Suddenly is overwhelmed to the point of death. He says, I'm sorrowful to the point of death. Why? Because of what's going to happen the next day. Where he must drink the cup of God's judgment, and he will drink it to the full, so that as he is judged on the cross, we can be forgiven. So that as he, the source of life, dies on the cross, we might receive life from God the Father. So that as he is rejected, we can be accepted. He says, that is why I've come. And that is why I proclaim this message of good news. Sin is the most serious condition that you have, he says. My friend, let me deal with it. That's why I've come. As the hymn says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. It is finished. Yes, indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Sinner, is this not? Repent and believe the good news. What can I ask you generally as I close? If this is Jesus' great agenda, if this is what the one with all power and authority in heaven and earth comes to do and comes to speak about, is this the great agenda of your life, to have your sin dealt with by Jesus? It should be. He says it's your primary ailment. And whatever else you feel, he will deal with those in the fullness of time. There's a promise in the new creation. He'll deal with all things. But right now, he wants to deal with your primary issue, your sin. Are you reconciled to God? Has he dealt with your sin? Have you accepted his forgiveness? He says, repent and believe the good news. And lastly, on this commissioning Sunday, in a few moments, we are going to be commissioned as a church family to be sent out with God's agenda for this community and for this city. Do you see what his agenda is? As he says in verse 38, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, to the city of London even, so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. And as he sends us, he says, do not go in your own strength. You will accomplish very little and you will get very tired very quickly. But if, like Jesus, we go in his strength, then who knows what he might do through us. Amen? Amen. Let me lead us in a prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has now and then all authority on heaven and earth. And so we pray that his agenda for our lives would be our agenda for our lives, that his transforming power that we see worked out here would be the transforming power, the heartbeat of our lives at work in us. Help us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him. And ultimately, Lord God, that we might know and proclaim the forgiveness of sins to a needy world. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.